Axis Mundi. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco, and I'm joined today by, just to be honest, an incredibly distinguished guest, and that is Dr. Russell Jung. So I'll just first say, Russell, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Brad. So uh, a lot of people out there are going to know who you are, but let me just tell them a little bit about you. You've been teaching at the San Francisco State for uh, quite a while now. You are the author of numerous works, and uh, those include Family Sacrifices, The Worldviews and Ethics of Chinese Americans, Moving Movers, Student Activism, and the Emergence of Asian American Studies, At Home in Exile, Finding Jesus Among My Ancestors and Refugee Neighbors. Um, you're also one of the co-founders of Stop AAPI Hate, and so that's something that I'm sure many people listening will uh, be aware of and, and understand. You're also just a frequent contributor to places like NPR and various documentaries and programs. So I'm sure folks have seen you in print, on TV, in their earbuds. But today we're here to talk about something that you've just written, and that's an op-ed for USA Today on what are, in essence, new alien land laws. And so let me just start at the very basics, if you don't mind. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of folks are quite aware of what is happening with these new laws. Uh, and uh, the proposed legislation that's that's going on across the country. Would you just give us a little bit of an introduction to to what prompted you to write the op-ed and what's happening in places, no, notably Florida, Texas, and and other states around the country? Sure. So um, again, thanks for having me, Brad. Glad to be on this program. And it, what's going on really does have to um, do with white nationalism. Currently, thirty states have either passed or have proposed us to ban Chinese from buying land in the United States. And these are what we call alien land laws. And the ostensible aim is to prevent Chinese um, government from spying on the United States and to protect America's food security. Um, they're concerned that maybe by buying up American agricultural land, uh, Americans have enough food to eat as if they need more food to eat. The, the problem with all these laws is that there is no real security threat. Uh, China isn't buying lands. Um, agricultural lands aren't being purchased by the Chinese government. Chinese, if they want to just buy, probably could find better ways of spying. And so these laws, like the law at the border are just sort of symbolic um, legislative attempts to say that these legislators are strong against China. And so um, overall, there's a huge movement, primarily a Republican movement, to say we have to protect the U.S. against its primary adversary, its existential threat, China. And the way we're going to stop China is by preventing them and Chinese citizens from buying up our land. I want to come back to the uh, the symbolic versus the functional nature of these laws. Like, do will they actually do anything 
uh, versus are they just sort of a symbolic gesture in the GOP's culture wars and and various ways that they want to sell themselves to uh, to to voters and and to the public. But I, I want to come back to something that's a big part of the op-ed that you wrote, and that is your family's history with with such laws. These kinds of alien land laws go back a century and a half in this country. Uh, would you mind just sort of going through how these kinds of laws have touched on your own family's history here in California? Sure. These laws aren't new. Alien land laws were always originally designed to protect again the interests of white citizens in the United States to protect their economic interests. And so as early as the 1860s, the 1870s, um, Chinese were banned from being able to purchase property in Oregon and California. They actually included it in the state constitution. So part of our foundational laws were that Chinese can't own property. Um, and later on, <clears throat> um, Chinese were then declared aliens ineligible for citizenship. And so that, that categorization, aliens ineligible for citizenship, led to future bans as a racially coded term on alien. And so when Japanese Americans became the next target of um, legislators, they said California created alien land laws saying aliens couldn't purchase land. And again, aliens primarily were coded words for Japanese Americans were um, not allowed to buy farmers. Um, these early bans again were um, made by whites to protect their economic interests to, to stop competition from other racial groups, especially in the agricultural arena. And so they were actually later ruled unconstitutional. They, they, it's basically clearly discrimination by national origin, but those, um, federal, um, rulings only cover the Western part of, Cal of the United States. And so other states outside the Western United States can still now today institute alien land laws. One of the things that I've noted on the show before is that in Florida, uh, of course, with uh, DeSantis as governor now, Florida is always on our minds. Uh, the, the alien land law in Florida, if I'm not mistaken, was only repealed in 2018. And so it seems what happened is you have these these laws pass and the late 19th century and early 20th century in a place like California or in Oregon. And then they spread across the country based on fear and based on this idea of being symbolically against those who would, quote unquote, threaten the United States and, and so on and so forth. In the most recent iterations, I'm just going to quote here from what you've written. You talk about Ron DeSantis and Ron DeSantis said that he his state is, quote, taking action to stand against the United States' greatest geopolitical threat, the Chinese Communist Party. We then have Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who said in December that the threat of the Chinese Communist Party to infiltrate the United States continues to grow. While the federal government holds the ultimate responsibility for foreign policy issues, the state also has the responsibility and opportunity to protect itself. My question is, is what do these laws in your mind do on the ground? If I am uh, in Florida, I am an Asian American person. I'm an Asian person. I'm a Chinese American person, so on and so forth. How do these laws stoke what is already a climate of uh, AAPI hate 
in the country stemming from COVID and, and other and other factors over the last couple of years? Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of proponents of these laws say we're not really targeting Chinese individuals. We're not necessarily being racist and targeting Asians in America. The laws are basically to protect against the Chinese government from purchasing land. The problem with that argument is that in America, people don't separate the Chinese government's actions from its people. They conflate the two. So studies have shown that if people have the perception that China is America's greatest threat, they share the stereotype that Chinese are immoral and untrustworthy, that they go hand in hand. Again, they link the Chinese people with the Chinese government. This is the way Asians are racialized. We're all sort of lumped together into this homogenous, evil, yellow peril perspective. Then what happens is that research has shown that if people have stereotypic views about China being a threat, about Chinese people, they extend that stereotype to Chinese in the U.S. So Chinese Americans are also seen to be immoral and trustworthy and dangerous. The research also shows that the same people don't only conflate Chinese government and Chinese people, they homogenize Asian people overall. So Chinese in the U.S., the Chinese government are equated with Asian Americans. So again, if China is the enemy, then what happens is that Asians in America become the enemy within. That happened to Japanese Americans in World War II with Japanese American incarceration. It happened after 9-11 with South Asians, Arab Americans, Muslims being seen as terrorists. And today, Asian Americans will get locked together with China being America's greatest enemy as enemies within the United States. That leads to two forms of discrimination. One is clear, if you're trying to buy property and it's illegal for Chinese to buy property, real estate agents will want to work with you. You're, you're not a good customer. It's unlikely that people will want to sell to you. And so you have that discrimination as being home buyers of, of being, of trying to get a foot into the American um, economy. The second consequence more broadly is that again, Asian Americans will be seen as the yellow peril and will face the generalized racism uh, uh, that we've seen during COVID-19, that again, were disease carrying people, that were threats to the American's economy, that were communists who are bent on taking over the world. All those stereotypes coalesce in this yellow peril fear that's getting stoked by politicians. So I, I've mentioned this on the show before, but I want to just ask you if this seems to sort of cohere in your mind. I'm imagining a scenario where, as you say, because Asian and Asian American people are associated with, with China and associated even more intimately with the Chinese government, if an Asian American family goes goes to to buy some property, goes to buy a house in Jacksonville or in in Pensacola or in Tallahassee, and they are of Vietnamese descent, they are of Korean descent, does not matter. What happens if they do buy the house and their kids start to ride bikes in the in the neighborhood? What happens if any Asian American person, including Chinese Americans, all the way to uh, to to South Asian folks, it doesn't matter. 
what happens on the ground, right? When you are a kid riding a bike in that neighborhood, when you're out at the, the neighborhood barbecue, when you're walking your dogs, when you are jogging in the morning, what are the, what are the comments you get as a result of this? I guess what I'm driving at here is sometimes we hear that politics is downstream of culture. But in this case, if, you, if politics sets a law, it almost feels like it's going to set the tone for a culture or, or at least ramp up the tone to the point that being an Asian person, a person of Asian descent in one of these neighborhoods will just be a, a, a climate of even more intimidation than already exists uh, today. Yeah. What it does is when the government creates these policies that are antagonistic towards uh, a group by national origin or by race, is that for Asian Americans, it's always meant to exclude us. And you asked about my family's history in the past. Congress passed the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, and that actually, that policy sanctioned further violence against Asian Americans or Asians in the U.S. by by the people. So government actions can actually exacerbate, sanction, green light, exclusion of Chinese through mob violence, through bullying, through um, microaggressions. And so what happened in 1882 is like just three years later, they had a period, what we call the Yellow Terror, where over 160 Chinese communities were actually forcibly driven out by mob violence. My great-grandparents were driven out of Monterey, California by a fire and that destroyed the entire village. If you fast forward today, your state passes bills that say Chinese aren't allowed to buy property, then that sort of attitude of we need we need to exclude Chinese are off suspect of being spies on the ground level kids are told to go back to in China you know that in in stop API data one out of five incidents people are told to go back to China you in chink and so <laughs> these policies get translated on the street level to schoolyard bullying towards spitting on grandma on the streets, towards mass shooting. So um, government actions really have clear consequences on what is considered normal behavior in broader society. Again, President Trump's angry rhetoric became license for America to unleash anti-Asian hate, basically. But that's the danger of government or political Rhetoric that's xenophobic it unleashes what's already a sentiment among the people. Yeah, it it seems to give license for people to to hate and to express the kinds of uh, vitriol that you just mentioned. I I, I want to uh, zoom out a little bit to us, you know, this set of laws, these alien land laws, as part of a kind of bundle of initiatives that, if viewed through a certain lens, really are seemingly designed uh, as anti-Chinese, as anti-Asian kind of initiative. So I'm thinking uh, about uh, things like uh, the TikTok bans that we're seeing, things related to prohibitions on, on money to universities coming from China and other countries. Would you help us sort of see that? You know, if I'm somebody who's not aware of these things and really not versed in, in, in this content, in this uh, area, how does the alien land laws of 2023 fit into a kind of package of things that are really aimed at at the, the same purpose? 
Yeah. So um, on each individual level, you could look at a piece of legislation or a policy or a political ad and say, okay, that makes sense. The intention of a policy is to protect American interests. But if you take a, a step back and look at what's been happening in terms of U.S.-China relations, it's at its all-time low. And politicians see that, and politicians recognize we can capitalize on the negative attitude of towards China. We can actually mobilize around the fear of China. They do so because it works. We've seen it throughout American history that if you create an enemy, target the outside enemy like China, it does two things. It riles up your base and gets them out to vote. Um, so people have been going out, get, going out to vote against anti-CRT efforts, which they think are Marxist, which equates to being communist, which equates to being Chinese. They've been mobilized to vote against woke culture. So one thing they do is they mobilize on yellow peril fears because it works. What they also do then is that they um, create policies that, again, individually don't seem innocuous, but together create not only fear, but an overall policy approach that's dangerous. And so um, you've mentioned the TikTok bans. The government had a Chinese initiative to surveil and racially profile Chinese scientists. It's, there's been book bans on Chinese American authors. There's currently a bill that every government agency in the federal government will have a point person to surveil and to guard against undue Chinese competition. So that point person then will be, their job is to be suspicious of any U.S.-China relation. So anyone who has economic ties, political ties, or even familial ties to China will become profiled and suspected. So all these policies altogether, and there, there are hundreds of um, COVID bills blaming China, making China responsible. So all these bills, um, health bills, trade, you know, trade bills, chip bills, military policies, they all target China as America's greatest threat. Both parties use that fear of China to mobilize their base. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't criticize or be concerned about China, but the overall exaggerated effect of this fear is that it leads to anti-Asian hate. And I've been studying just anti-Asian hate, you know, ever since we created Stop API and just the direct correspondence that China bashing leads to the bashing of Chinese and American and to Asian Americans is just felt obvious to me that we have to stop the, the fear mongering. We have to stop the rising U.S.-China antagonism because it doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't really work. And our nation's economies are so intertwined. We have so many global issues that require international cooperation, like the climate crisis, that unless we address U.S.-China relations, we're the real existential threat is that we're destroying our environment and we need to work with other countries rather than make other countries the scapegoat and blame of global it, problems. There, so many thoughts I'm having as I've just listening to here. And one of them is, 
it seems to me, and totally happy for you to to you know chime in on this and correct me if you feel like I'm I'm off base, but we hear a lot about white privilege these days, almost to the point that people sometimes don't actually pay attention to what that might mean on the ground. One of the things that seems to be a privilege of being white in the United States is that, you know, you as a, a person, an individual, are not racialized to the point that your identity is melded with what is assumed to be your country or uh, of origin. So what I mean by that is that when it comes to somebody who's, say, German-American or Italian-American or Irish-American, nobody assumes that their actions and their character and their morality is tied to the Irish government or the German government, right? But what you said earlier really struck me is that one of the, the things that is true about American history is that people of Asian descent have been associated as individuals with the, the governments of their presumed right places of, of, of heritage or of, of descent, right? And so I'm thinking about Japanese Americans during World War II and my own family and the ways that Japanese people in the United States, people, Japanese Americans, people of Japanese descent were assumed to sort of be carrying out the wishes of the Japanese emperor or something. And here we have the same thing with, with what you're talking about with Chinese Americans and people of Chinese descent in the United States, where when the rhetoric about China is ramped up because of how Asian American folks and Chinese and Chinese American folks have been coded in the country, it leads to a direct increase in the, the antagonism, harassment, and marginalization of Chinese Americans and people of Chinese descent in the United States. Does that make sense to you just in terms of the ways that these macro factors then uh, impact individuals on the ground as they're living in Florida or California or Ohio or anywhere else? Yeah, I think you summarized it really well. Again, broad policies create enemies and target groups as being the enemy get followed down on the individual level to people from those nations. And um, that's a particular form of Orientalism for how Asians face racism. I don't think like Russian Americans face backlash of Russian invasion of Ukraine, but if China attacked Taiwan, you're going to see this huge backlash against Chinese and Asians in America. And so Orientalism is this notion that I think is really important. It's that the East is East and the West is West, and they're polar opposites. So the West is superior democratic, whereas the East is inferior and authoritarian. The, <clears throat> the West is normal, the East is exotic. The West is rational, the East is superstitious. The West is freedom-loving, the East is communist and, again, authoritarian. So when you have that sort of broad view of Orientalists, that, that comes from a white nationalist perspective. You tend to think of any, you lump again, Asians with their country. And if the country is enemy, then the Asians, again, are the enemy. The outsiders to be excluded, the dangerous yellow peril. What I'm going to argue, though, is that in Orientalism, Westerners have this view of the East. It's that, that view, that either or view, East is East, West is West, was created by academics, but also represented in art, in literature, you'll see it in movies, that our, our, our cultures are opposite. But what Edward Said said is that Orientalism is more about how, not how the West viewed the East, but how the West saw itself. 
right? That the West saw itself as normal, progressive, superior by creating, again, an outside inferior culture. I'm going to argue that the yellow peril here that we see now in America, that China is authoritarian, that China is um, too much of an unfair economic competition, that China is too large and authoritarian with its harsh COVID policies. America, this yellow peril here isn't so much about how Americans feel about China. The yellow peril fear that we're seeing, the U.S.-China policies that we're seeing are more reflections of how America feels about itself. That we're just, as Americans, projecting all our national anxieties, all our national insecurities, all our national fears onto China, when in reality, America is just sort of unsure about its economic state. America is unsure about its global standing. America is anxious about how it handles its COVID response. And so with all the demographic changes, and yeah, this is basically the, the thesis about white nationalism, all of these fears that whites have uh, leads to Trumpism and leads to, you know, again, yellow peril policies. It, it seems true that whether it's an individual or a community or a nation, projection is easier than introspection. And uh, <laughs> it does not matter if, if it's uh, me trying to be a better dad or uh, a nation trying to come to terms with its own anxieties, it's easier to project onto other people than it is for us to do actual introspection about our own insecurities and fears and shortcomings. My last question will be this. On this show, we talk a lot about a fictional Uncle Ron. Uncle Ron is a white American guy at the barbecue who uh, uh, listens to various uh, talking heads and comes to the barbecue ready to argue. And he wants to, he wants to spew his opinion. So here's what Uncle Ron is going to tell somebody at the barbecue is listening. He, Uncle Ron's going to show up and say, what's wrong with these laws? All we're trying to do is keep the communist Chinese government from getting land near our bases and, uh, you know, infiltrating uh, American e economies and cultures. Um, what else, what do you expect us to do? Isn't there, is there something else you could do that would be effective? Or is there something else that one might do uh, that would actually be helpful? If somebody's listening, what would you say is a, is a good one minute answer to Uncle Ron while you're trying to eat your hot dog at the barbecue? Yeah. Uncle Ron, I can understand your concerns about the American economic state. I can understand your um, desire to protect America's borders, right? So those concerns are valid, and I think they're deeply felt. I understand that a lot of Americans, especially farmers, economic standing is really uh, unstable at this moment. But as the object of that, you know, we're talking about projecting of fears. As a victim of that projection, as um, don't blame me for these large issues of economic instability, of inflation. Don't blame me for issues of, of America's loss of jobs. Instead, what we need to do is, like our cousin Brad over here said, is we need to introspect and say, okay, what's, how are we really going to get at the root issues of our national issues of economic um, stability and also address global issues like pandemics, like climate change 
And for me, the best way to, is to work together with other nations to stabilize our economy. The best way is to work with other nations to address climate crisis. The best way is to work with other nations peaceably rather than creating wars that don't actually address your economic issue. So, Uncle Ron, uh, just work with us. Work with, work with whom you think is the enemy and instead target the real um, sources of our problems. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Uncle Ron doesn't usually listen. It's always nice to have an answer. And, uh... I, I, I have a quick... So we've just done a study on how do you help people on the other political side, like U.S.-China relations, like climate change. The best way with Uncle Ron is, again, what we call developing deep empathy yeah. by really hearing him and listening to him. Because, again, his concerns are valid. And if we get to the root of the problems and his concerns and fears, Uncle Ron and Cousin Brad and I often have similar feelings, but we just sort of project those fears and antagonisms in different places. I think that's so important. And I think that's something that is, is hard to, uh, is hard to do in, in practice, but is something that if, if one disciplines themselves and cultivates that practice can be so, so effective because, um, you know, I understand if somebody says, well, I've read about spies who have made their way into the various rooms uh, with Congress people or with the Trump organization or whatever, and I've heard about this and that, I'm afraid and I want to protect my country, my family, my country or my state, my community, whatever. And as you're saying, there's a way to listen to someone's fears while also hopefully helping them understand why projecting those fears onto various individuals, various communities, uh, with kind of what are short-sighted answers to those fears uh, is actually really hurtful to a lot of people and leads to violence and exclusion and marginalization and so on. And so, all right, we'll leave it there. Can you tell us uh, where's the best way to link up with you and all of your work? You're always publishing something new. You always have a new book coming out. So how can people be abreast of what is, uh, what's to come from you? Uh -huh. I don't have a good social media. I'm clearly not a brand. So they could email me if they want. I, they could Google me and find me at Francisco State Asian American Studies. I'd be happy to speak to groups. I've been doing this a lot. Um, and uh, thank you for the chat, brothers. Well, your brand is the anti-brand. I love that. I, I love that. That's like the best. That's the best kind of brand is to not have one. All right, friends. Well, as always, find us at Straight White JC. Find me at Bradley Onishi. You can find all of our info at our our, our website, StraightWhiteAmericanJesus.com. And we're an indie show. We do this three times a week. So if you're around on PayPal or Patreon or Venmo, it always helps us. Other than that, we'll be back later this week with It's in the Code and the weekly roundup. But for now, we'll just say thanks for listening. Have a good day. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.